Hey, this is Kat Kahn from Knoxville, Tennessee. And Tanya Rice from Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are grateful you've joined us. And we cannot wait to share with you the musings of a couple of yogis. We hope you learn, laugh, and enjoy. And we hope you will share with us any of your comments or questions. Without further ado, this is Two Pittas on a Pod. How's Kat? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah? Tuesday, but it feels like Thursday afternoon at 4.30. Oh, so it means it's time for a glass of wine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Uh, how's, how's Tanya? I'm good. You know, the same old, always something going on. Yeah. Yeah, but it's all good. And I'm excited because we're talking about the sacred text today. But more than that, I'm excited because I get to interview you. It makes me a little nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tanya, can you tell our listeners about your your journey through the sacred texts? Yes, I can. Because, you know, for me, it's what I really love. So it doesn't take much for me to feel super open about talking about it, right? Like you think about the parts of yoga that you really love are the parts that's easy for you to be passionate about and for you to talk about. Mm-hmm. I really love the history, the deep philosophy of yoga. And out of that comes reading and getting real cozy with the sacred texts, right? Right. It is authentic. It's genuine. Mm-hmm. It's not the mucked up, Western version with the perfect yoga pants and, you know, that, you know, how expensive was your yoga mat? Like, right. To me, the authentic texts were you do yoga under a tree outside in either the middle of the forest or the middle of a desert. Like it has nothing to do with the studio that you attend and what you're wearing. Well, when did you find that connection? Was that one of the first things that drew you? No, you eventually, you know, got into yoga, or you initially got into yoga like I did with another fitness activity. Yeah, so it did not make the click for me right away. No, I think that it took for me getting into my yoga teacher training for me to start reading some texts. And then when I was in those texts, just going, wow, like I can't get enough of this, like feed me some more, right? There was never going to be enough. Wow. Well, very cool. But since then, you've been a constant student of the text, haven't you? Oh, pretty much. Like, you know, if you look at my bookshelves, there's yeah. always a book that still needs to be read. And and even though I've read some of them, you know, the sacred texts before, I swear that every time I reread them, something new jumps out at me. And it's also, I think, where your perception is at the time you read the book, right? Uh, and yeah, it's the same thing even with the Bible. My dad reads the Bible every year you know he starts it well not every year I think it takes him a while to get through but he's read it all the way through I don't know for the past several years but eight times just in the past few years he's read it through so and he gets something different every time so it's the same thing with these sacred texts but can you tell our listeners what are considered the sacred sacred texts. Oh my gosh. So you, you think about it from the standpoint of you bring up the Bible, you think about like all good solid religions have a sacred text that they somewhere referenced as we'll say the rules and regs to their foundation of faith, right? So you have like the Torah, the Bible. In yoga, in yoga, those texts are 
more Hindu founded and or Buddhist founded. And not to say that that's a requirement for you to read these books. Like me, I I swear, as my study of the sacred text has grown, so also has my love of theology in general. Like it doesn't have to be a specific religion, a specific faith. I like to gravitate to the fact that I feel like we're all saying the same things. We're just using different words and different languages to say it. I agree. I love that. Yeah. And so finding those ties is, I feel, what makes it so unique, right? Like it's just, it's just super strong. So in yoga, we refer to like the Vedas, the Upanishads, the story of Buddha's life and Buddha's teachings, the Yoga Sutras, and again, the Mahabharata, which we'll get into. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the Mahabharata, but I know you've heard of the Bhavagai Gita. Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk about that and their relationship. Okay, so you mentioned the Vedas and the word yoga first appeared in the Rig Veda around the year 2000 BC, right? Yeah, many thousands of years ago. I mean, you think about it now, we're like 4,000 years later. Wow, isn't that crazy? It's a wild. <laughs> so what are the Vedas? So the Vedas are the actual oldest text. It is the oldest will say manuscript for a faith that was written on walls in caves on you know pottery it was like the hieroglyphics of what you find in the egyptian pyramids the stories of the pharaohs and it it was essentially the past along language of what people were speaking and or chanting together, but did not have a means of language or written words at the time. So the Vedas were the original oldest texts. I read somewhere that it's said to be a treasure vault to wisdom and knowledge. What do you think about that? I love that because I was just about to say that it was pieces of information that came from the enlightened people, what the Bible would call the prophets. Uh what the Vedas would call those tidbits or those pieces of information from the enlightened people. Oh, cool. Right? Like who doesn't want to learn something from an enlightened person? (laughs) Now, those people, were they the Brahmins? So now you're kind of getting into class and we're kind of crossing into like the Hindu caste system. Mm -hmm. And although the Brahmins in the Hindu caste system were the well-to-do, they were the churchgoers, they were the educated ones. That wasn't necessarily to say that they were the only ones who could be the enlightened ones. There were people who were not rich who were also enlightened. However, the only ones that were probably heard at the time were the rich ones. Right. So that caste system is a little tricky because I would never say that in order for you to be enlightened, you also had to be a rich Brahmin or a, you know, a chosen elected Brahmin. Right. As opposed to just a lay person like you or I. It does make sense because they had more money, so they had more visibility. Someone that was enlightened that lived in a hut probably wouldn't be out mentioning and talking and spreading their enlightenment as much as someone that had a lot of money and 
Right. But then you can also see how that becomes very attractive to the lower class because they're like, oh, because they're enlightened, they're also rich. Like <laughs> abundance came to them because they were enlightened. Like you can see how that circle becomes cyclic, right? Uh, well, what else can you tell us about the Vedas? The Vedas are really hard to read. It's very choppy. It's very old. If you spend any amount of time in this book, and you could look at mine, you'd be like, what? That seems like it's really hard to read because it gives you all of these words. And I swear if you were to string together all of the language that comes out of the Vedas, you'd be like, none of that makes sense. And again, it's because like what you and I were talking about, it's really those tidbits of information. It wasn't like eloquently strung together into a story, which is more comfortable for most people to read. Right. And the word Veda means knowledge, right? It does mean knowledge. Well, would you say the Vedas are still relevant today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You just have to be able to find a good interpretation that makes you feel comfortable talking about it. But the majority of the vocabulary that comes to us in yoga comes straight through the Vedas. You know, I read somewhere that... The Vedas particularly deal with the knowledge that helps us in realizing our true self. And I loved that so much because yeah, I get intimidated by the Vedas. So that's why I love it when you talk about the sacred text, because it makes it feel more approachable for me. It makes it feel like something I can understand because when I one of those books, <laughs> like you just flipped at me, I, I, it, it is a very overwhelming. I tell my students, I tell my students in teacher training, I tell whoever, you know, is curious about them, do it like you do journaling. Mm -hmm. Read two pages. That's it. Do not sit down like you're going to read this like a story. Because yeah. if you try and read it that way, you are going to get very intimidated. I get very intimidated. I literally have to read one to four pages and then I have to digest those one to four pages. Then a couple of days later, I will read one to four more pages. But you need time to digest it because, as I said, it's too much at you at one time. Like this is a lifetime of faith condensed into what, uh, you know, 200 pages. You look at the Bible. The Bible is 1500 pages. Yeah. It's written more like a story. If this had been created and spread out into more of a story, it would be easier to digest, mm -hmm. right? Well, so, you know, we all want to realize our, self, our true self. So go read those Vedas. Go read those Vedas. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move on to the Upanishads. The first description of yoga as a method appeared there, right? True. The Upanishads are actually kind of the last part of the Vedas which was then made into a bigger text, which made more of the foundation for what we call yoga, right? Like the Upanishads sort of started to lay out the foundation of how that religion and faith was going to become an actual story. And the Upanishads are written more story-like. Mm -hmm. So visualize that if the Upanishads is whatever, 250 pages, that they took that last 50 pages of the Vedas and turned it into the Upanishads. 
which is now an eloquently written 350 page story, right? That is easier to digest. Would you say then that the Vedas were written to preserve information about more the religious practices and the traditions, whereas the Upanishads were more the, I don't know, psychological thoughts of men and women that focus more on enlightenment? Yes. The Upanishads are more the defining of the way of a yogic life, the meaning and the importance of our behavior and seeking that enlightenment. Mm -hmm. This is more the guideline, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not, you should do this, you should do that. It's, this is what we did. This is what worked, right? Because they weren't teaching it from the standpoint that they were expecting it to turn into a faith or a way of life. They were storytelling, right? right? This was the way of one of the enlightened ones. This was the way of another enlightened one. It was the story of the enlightened people. So the Upanishads are much easier to read and get through for you than the Vedas? Yes, much easier to understand, more digestible. <laughs> now, before I ask about Buddha, do you have anything else you want to talk about with you, Upanishads or the Vedas? Uh, we'll come back to them because I have some book references for people because there's like so many interpretations of them. So I'm going to give you the ones that I enjoy as interpretations because, again, you know, it's like the Bible. How many versions of the Bible are? There? Well, so Buddha lived during the time of the Upanishads, right? Yes. You tell us about the Buddha? The Buddha lived actually almost a thousand years after the Upanishads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you visualize the Vedas were somewhere in 2000 BC, the Upanishads erupted somewhere around 1500 BC. The Buddha's life is somewhere around 500 BC, right? And his life, you know, was dedicated to finding the path of enlightenment, even though it meant major sacrifice. He left his wife and his children, whereas he was ridiculed for that, right? But he was a regular man, right? But he knew there was a path to enlightenment. He knew there was a path to holiness. And he felt like the stress, the relationship, the family that he loved was maybe a stumbling block for him Mm -hmm. when it came to his interpretation of of the enlightened way, right? You read his stories like that were told by him. And of course, he never wrote anything down himself. So everything we know about the Buddha or Siddhartha, you know, everything we know about this man came out of, we'll say, the parable like stories that he told when he would be sitting under a tree and have a flock of people come to listen to him, Mm -hmm. right? And even though he made major sacrifice in his life and he dealt with the ridicule, no different than a man like Jesus, who also faced his ridicule and would, you know, go door to door and have some people slam the door in his face. It's the similar same story, right? And he spoke to his followers as if these parables were going to help them find what he found, right? And so out of that came the Four Noble Truths that most people know about, right, that came through Buddha. All of those 
you hear about the time that Buddha was talking to the snake. So all of those parables are stories that he would tell to those followers that would be willing to listen and sit at his feet. Now, Buddha was from a wealthy class. Buddha was from a wealthy class. This is true. He renounced everything. He handed it all over. And he, as part of his journey, lived off either the land or that which people would give him. He mm-hmm. renounced all of his wealth, all of his education. Wow. He, he literally gave up everything in order to find this path. Well, now you lightly touched on the Four Noble Truths. And that they kind of contain the essence of Buddha's teaching. What are they? Okay, so Buddha's four noble truths are, one, life has inevitable suffering. And we all know this. We all know that there will never be a life that is pain-free. Never. And that there is cause to all of that suffering. And usually, we don't want to hear it. It's probably our own fault. But I'm not going to say that too loudly, right? We all know it, though. The third noble truth is that there is an end to all suffering. And unfortunately, that end can sometimes be the point of death, the Mm -hmm. point of judgment, depends on what your beliefs are. Or it could be the point where, like as Buddha said, you choose to renounce all wealth, all attachment, all of everything, and you go, we'll say, sit under a tree and be enlightened. The trick to that is, is there's probably not reality for us to do that. Like you can't just wake up tomorrow morning and say, yep, I'm done with this life, this business. I'm done with all of it. I'm going to go sit under a tree and hopefully people will come feed me. Right. (laughs) Like there is maybe a little bit of non-reality to that, but the point is still the same. You can have those will say material things that you have amassed without being attached to them, without them motivating everything that you do, right? If you're motivated by pure intention, it's a little bit cleaner than being motivated by where will you, what will you drive next? You know, what, what pair of yoga pants will you buy next, right? Like if you're not motivated, Mm -hmm. but instead motivated by kind acts, kind deeds, giving and being generous, then all of a sudden you'll see that abundance and less suffering comes to you, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth of the noble truths is the end of suffering is contained in the eightfold path, which Mm -hmm. is that relationship that you and I wanted to bring up between the four noble truths and the eight limbed path of yoga. And the eight-limbed path of yoga is what we refer to in our teacher trainings all the time. It's what we refer to in Hatha Yoga. It's what we refer to when we talked about the yamas and the niyamas, when we talk about meditation, postures, pranayama. All of that is contained within the eightfold path that Buddha says, if you can figure out that, yes, there's one going to be pain, two, that you're probably the cause of your own pain, Three, that you know your pain will come to an end. And four, that usually that end is finding a way that is more yogic. Mm -hmm. Then that yogic path will be your eightfold journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read that the steps of the Noble Eightfold Path are right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Which is quite literally the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. It's just said in different words besides the yamas, the niyamas, 
asana pranayama you know what i'm saying it's the same thing it just happens to be in words that align with the way the buddha wrote the four noble truths Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so we've hit the vedas we've hit the upanishads we've talked about the buddha and the four noble truths and the eightfold path one of my favorites are the yoga sutras one of my favorites too and I think probably the easiest for people to wrap their brains around, and especially if you've gone down a path of yoga teacher training, because a lot of times the sutras are heavily threaded in your yoga teacher training programs. But the sutras came along about 200 BC, so it would have been slightly following Buddha, but it was still out of the Vedas and the Upanishads, right? The yoga sutras was like, Now the Upanishads actually put into, here's the recipe, do this, do that, follow this, act like that, behave this way. And now all of a sudden you were subscribing to an order, right? And the order made sense. But at the same time, the order had reference to the Hindu faith. So a good deal of the sutras If you have a Christian-based foundation, you're going to see a lot of things lining up that seem very similar, but then you're also going to see a lot of things that divert, right? In the Christian faith, there's a belief in life after, however, that life after is usually in the form of a heaven or, you know, a, a judgment that then takes you to a place of, you know, loveliness. Whereas in the Hindu faith, that life after is generally in the form of reincarnation until you get to that place of enlightenment where then your reincarnations cease, right? So it is slightly different, but it is still the same foundation. And I really love those threads that are so similar. I think it's just fascinating to me, right? Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it is, is that the sutras was the first time they actually had written language. So the sutras had been written on scrolls, much like the Bible was written on scrolls. And then they were gathered together and they were all put together into one work, which is the work that we usually reference when we're looking at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, right? Because he Mm -hmm. was the great noble who put those texts together and put them into an order so that they would be readable for the rest of us, right? And he was a noble? He was a Brahmin. He was a noble. He was a higher class person. Yes, he was educated. About that. I I mean, I just, I never thought one way or the other. I just always heard Patanjali, but... Yeah. Well, it's funny because in theory, all of the great yogis that we know were all well-educated, which meant they came from money, Mm -hmm. right? And the information that comes to us through the sutras is that recipe of the eight limbs. It describes for us the yamas. It describes for us the niyamas. It describes for us the whole eightfold path. And out of those eight limbs, out of the yoga sutras was then born the great yogis in that same well-educated class like Krishnamacharya, mm-hmm. Deskachar, Iyengar. They all came through that lineage of the eight limbed path of Hatha yoga. You mentioned Krishnamacharya version of Raja Yoga in 1896, that really kind of became the model for Western yoga, wouldn't you say? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Raja Yoga is the yoga that kind of came through to the Western world in the time of Deskachar and Iyengar. They were students of students of students of Krishnamacharya or sons, nephews of, you know, mm -hmm. the, the enlightened path that was spread from, you know, down the descendants. And that path that came over to the West was the beginning of Hatha Yoga here, which then, of course, broke apart into, you know, Yogi Bhajan, who created Kundalini Yoga, and, you know, Bautiste and Chowdhury and all of the great yogis that are now the 20th century, 21st century yogis. Mm -hmm. Well, the eight limbs of yoga, why do you think that connected so well with the West? Because it was the same language like we were talking about as the Bible, like you, the first two limbs of yoga are essentially the Ten Commandments. So the language was familiar, and yet it didn't arrive here with an associated institution of a religion, right? When, when yoga arrived here, it arrived here as a this is a feel-good feeling. You're not required to show up on Sunday and do it right? You can do it at home. You can do it with your friends. You can do it with your children, right? Like it was a path that made sense for people that wasn't attached to an institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do like the similarities between um, the eight limbs and the Christian Bible, because that for me at my studio, that keeps people a little more comfortable because we don't talk a lot of philosophy and stuff in the studio, but um, you know, that does make people a lot more comfortable. Well, it does. It makes it more palatable because we're like, okay, well, this isn't the antichrist. Whereas there's a whole class of people that are like, well, yoga, that's the antichrist. Like we can't consider that. Whereas if we really look at the nuts and bolts of both of them, they are the same thing. It's just that it happened to be spoken in two different languages in two different countries. But what's behind it, all of the nuts and bolts of it, it's the same thing. It's always amazing to me, and I throw this in every time we talk about philosophy, is I cannot understand how there can be religious wars. And yet they're still going, like even now, that we're fighting over principle where if we all sat down and were kind enough yeah. to hear each other's story, we would actually hear that we're saying the same thing. We're just using a different vocabulary and we might need a translator. Yeah. <laughs> like I, it still just guffaws me, yeah. right? But then yeah, I'm probably just way too rose colored glasses. Well, you know, you know, we, like, why can't we just all get along? Love, <laughs> joy, happiness. Let's all get along. All right. Well, the last one we're going to talk about is the Bhagavad Gita. Nice. So can you tell us what it is? One of my faves. Mm -hmm, mine too. So the Bhagavad Gita is, it's like a story that is written in the form of a eloquent Poem. Mm -hmm. And the poem is the story of Arjuna, right? How well do you know the Bhagavad Gita? Have you read it a couple of times? I have I once. Uh, I am a learner at your feet. So you go. Okay. So Arjuna was a soldier and Arjuna was sent to fight a war. A again, high religious wars. And Arjuna had a charioteer who was Krishna. And Krishna was, in the story, the, we'll say, human embodiment of God. Mm -hmm. And so his advisor was right there, 
right? Come down from wherever or all around you, however you see the divine, and seated right there with him throughout his whole battle, which is a likeness and a lesson to all of us, right? That regardless what your battle is, look right next to you. The divine is right there. And all you need to do is lean over. Like, right? Hey. <laughs> hey. And and for some people, that means look up, whatever it is, look inside, however you need to term that in your language, your faith, your religion. But the answers are usually right there, mm-hmm. right? And so the Bhavaka Gita is this beautiful story of the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna mm-hmm. and the advising that Krishna gives him on how to come to terms with this battle, right? This battle over his faith and his land and his beliefs and how can I fight my brothers? Like, how can you tell me that's the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a wonderful story. Well, where does it come from? So, and this is the best part. So <laughs> the Bhagavad Gita is actually a part of the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. And if you have never gotten into the Mahabharata, this was what I was referencing when I said a book that's about as long as the Bible. So it's about a thousand pages. And the Mahabharata is a story of all of the legends and all of the, the gods the noble people, the lineage and the history, the legends of the stories, right? And within the Mahabharata is the section where Arjuna is in it. So the Bhagavad Gita is actually about 50 pages of this thousand page text. So the Bhagavad Gita is, is literally a section of the Mahabharata. That is really cool. I did not know that. Yes. So if you want the whole story, you (laughs) must read the Mahabharata, which Mm -hmm. the Mahabharata is an amazing read. It's amazing love story. It's amazing passion for the divine. It's amazing sacrifice. It's the story of families, of great successes, of huge blunders and errors, of sorrow and forgiveness. This is an amazing story. The problem with reading the Mahabharata is you need a notebook or you need to read it while listening to it because there are so many characters that sometimes you get fully lost. I mean, the book comes with maps and it tells you like where the families come from and then a huge tree like a family tree that shows you how they all come together but if you try reading this just simply cover to cover you'll be like whoa like in the first 10 pages they introduced 40 characters and I have no idea who's who and what's what and how they got together right Mm -hmm. wow but if you do like I did, I read the book while also listening on audio because then I could also get the pronunciation of some of those names because I'd read a name and I, it you know, six syllables later and I'm still chewing on it and have no idea how to. So I'd be like, oh, we're just going to call them by the first two syllables. <laughs> but I did. I had a notebook and I was like, this is so-and-so's mom. This is so-and-so's daughter. This is, you know what I mean? Like, Otherwise, it was really complicated. But it is an amazing read if you have some time on your hands. Do you know who wrote it? So again, it's got a bunch and bunch and bunch of translations. So like the Mahabharata that I have, the version I have is retold by Krishna Dharma. Mm -hmm. And I love this 
version. Again, just like the Bible, there's a ton of versions. When it comes to the Bhagavad Gita, this is my favorite one by Stephen Mitchell, which is a translation of Tao Te Ching, a new English version. Mm -hmm. And this one is really amazing because it kind of is spoken in more English versus the old English that's sometimes so hard to track, Mm -hmm. right? So this version is much more palatable. I do have several versions. I have the Ice Warren version too of the Bhagavad Gita, which is also a really good likeness. I had a third version that I lent out to someone and I have no idea where it is now. I feel like it's lost forever, but it was my favorite and I had it tabbed and many notes in it and it is no longer in my possession. Well, I just looked it up and it says the Bhagavad Gita was written at some point between 400 BC and 200 AD. Okay, so it's right in the same lineage when actual written language came to be when the sutras were put down on paper too, which does make sense. And it says the exact author is unknown, but some believe it to be a man named Vayasa. Oh, Vayasa. Yes, I've heard that too. Mm -hmm. And he is someone who may or may not have existed. Who knows? Ah, (laughs) But it's now our favorite time. It's book sharing time. Okay. (laughs) I love that. It is now what we kids call book time. (laughs) So I've got my little stack of books to share, Tanya. (laughs) I know, right? This might be one of those things where we're like, folks, just know there's a ton of books out there because I think we have a thousand of us, thousand of them between us. I love the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that was by Siri Swami Sachi Dandyasana, that one. Mm -hmm. And um, I used this one. I did not know this book before I took my 500 hour with you. The Path of the Yoga Sutras by Nikolai Brockman. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Book, The Living Sutras. I love that little book. It's very, very simple. And it is very easy for people. It's even like a bathroom book. Yeah, it's a simple read. A very simple read. It's uh, by Kelly DiNardo. Yeah. So when it comes to the Vedas, the book that I have on the Vedas and of course, I'm not going to get this completely right, but it's Sri Chandra Sekarandra Saraswati. Uh-huh. Yeah, a couple thousand of them. But this is a great likeness. I've been through a couple and sometimes they're really hard to get a hold of. But the Vedas is a great book. The Upanishads, the one that I use is the Eknath Aswaran. Um, and this writer has done a lot of interpretations of a lot of them. I have the Bhagavad Gita by the same um, interpreter or translator. When it comes to the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I told you about the one that I have from Eswaran, but then also this one that I really love by Stephen Mitchell. And then the Mahabharata I have is by Krishna Dharma. The only other book that you and I have not mentioned, I shouldn't say the only other, I have like four or five more, but we don't have time for them, would be the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, Mm -hmm. the healing power of yoga, kundalini, and tantra, which I know you and I talked about. Should we add that? And we're like, nay, we don't probably have enough time. The other one would be the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a fantastic read. Wow. And then the last one that I have is the Shambhala. And we can put all of these on our website when it gets Completely. finished. I, I know. I'm so excited. We're going to have a website soon, everybody. 
<laughs> I know, I'm excited. But yeah. yeah, so that's those are a lot of good books. And you said them all so fast, I couldn't write them down to put my Amazon shopping cart. Yes, and we're going to have to put that out there somewhere in writing so people are able to uh, get a hold of that list because we did go through a crap ton of books. You know, I was real surprised when I first started talking about any of the history and philosophy of yoga in my classes. I always was a little leery about talking about that just because of where, you know, where my studio was in Texas and here in Tennessee. And it's amazing to me how thrilled and interested everyone is Mm -hmm. learning. Yeah. I think that's the part I love most about our yogis is our yogis are open to learning, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual. I mean, they're they're up for wellness. And part of wellness is just having an open heart and an open ear, right? Being willing to listen that there could be a truth that we were missing. Mm-hmm. Or that can enhance your truth. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Look so- at us all aglow. I know. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. I'm Kat Khan. And I am Tanya Rice. And this is Two Pittas on a Pod signing off. Thank you for listening to Two Pittas on a Pod. We're grateful you joined us. Join us again for more musings of a couple of yogis. We hope you learned, laughed, and enjoyed this podcast. And we hope you will share your comments or questions. Email us at twopittasonapod at gmail.com. And like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two Pittas on a Pod.